Well, as Tony said, I turned 33 years old this morning. Thank you. Uh, and basically what that means is that at the ripe old age of 33, I've arrived. I pretty much know all there is to know. You can... <laughs> Listen, don't be jealous. You can be 33 one day yourself, okay? Basically means I've arrived, I know all there is to know about life, relationships, politics, and any other subjects that you have questions about. Come and talk to me because I'm 33 today and I've made it, right? Now you're laughing at me, disrespectfully so, but you're laughing at me because you know that's ridiculous, right? There's nothing ripe about 33. <laughs> nothing, you're incredibly wise about the age of 33. And basically, as a person who pursues wisdom, and pursues knowledge and pursues what life is all about, what I've come to realize is that the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know much at all. <laughs> the older and wiser that I get, the more I come to grips with the reality that I don't know half of what I thought I knew. I'm constantly discovering and constantly uncovering things that I simply did not know or things that I thought I knew, but I had it incredibly wrong. And as I discovered that, as I get older, I realized, I've come to the liberating realization that I simply don't have to know everything, that I don't have to be an expert on everything. I don't have to have an answer for every question that's asked me. I don't have to be some know-it-all. But I have discovered, as I've gotten older and a little bit wiser, that there are a handful of things that I absolutely need to know. I don't need to be good at everything. I don't have to have immense knowledge about everything. I'm getting freer in that area. What I've discovered is there's a handful of things that I re really need to know, that I really need to get right in this life. And if I get those few things wrong, then I get a lot wrong in my life. We spent about six weeks prior to this weekend talking about something that I think falls squarely in that category, and that is relationships. We spent about six weeks unpacking the various aspects of our interpersonal relationships with one another. We've talked about how, you know, our purpose in life, as presented in the scriptures, is to love God and to love people. Everything that God asks us to do and everything he asks us not to do boils down to those two things, loving God and loving others. Loving God and relating well with other people. And to get relationships wrong, if you don't have a firm understanding of how to do relationships well, you'll really, really get a lot wrong in this life. And I think a sort of cousin to that whole uh, idea of relationships and doing relationships well, I think it's the whole uh, uh, idea of sex and sexuality. If we fail to get sex and sexuality, have a good, firm, uh, unshakable understanding, right, of how we're supposed to steward and manage sex and sexuality, particularly our own, I think we stand to get a lot wrong. We we'll, we'll, we'll deal with all sorts of regret, we'll have broken relationships, and life will start to come unraveled, and we'll, you'll wonder why. And it's for that reason that each year, particularly in the summer months, that we've carved out some time to talk specifically about sex. I've called this sermon series that I'll begin today simply, What About Sex? The Christian world especially, but the world at large, has lots and lots of questions about this subject. Particularly those of us who are ascribed to the tenets and, and the, 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 the statutes and principles of the faith, we have burning questions about sex and sexuality, and that's basically one I begin, one begin to unpack over the next few weeks. I do want to say that this sermon series, particularly this message, is rated PG-13. I know you're probably not used to getting ratings, you know, with your sermons, but I do want to respect your wishes as parents to really control the pace at which you talk about these things. So I'm going to say it a couple times today. You probably noticed the signs when you came in that this message is PG-13. Now, I'm not going to be unnecessary, you know, unduly controversial and just, you know, just saying whatever I want to say. But I do want permission to go for it without, you know, being overly concerned with young ears hearing it. So I want to give you a fair warning because we're going to get into some stuff today, right? But we're going to talk about sex and sexuality mainly because it's a really hot button issue in our culture today. It's a high stakes issue. And as I said earlier, if you get this wrong, you get a lot wrong. 
And I think as Christians, we are responsible for shaping our own worldview and outlook on this subject. We're also, many of us here today, are parents. Parents of small children, parents of teenagers, parents of adult children. And regardless of the age of your children, you still have some responsibility to help them shape you know, these very important, important ideas and worldviews in their hearts. So I think also we are responsible for helping our families navigate through this issue, our extended families, and especially the unbelieving world around us. You know, Jesus calls us to be salt, calls us to be light, which basically means we are to impact the world around us. Unfortunately, uh, we, sometimes we struggle with this issue uh, as much as, if not more than, the world does. And so if they were trying to look to us for any sense of bearings or any sense of stability, they might not find it depending on who they look at. And for that reason, I think we need to spend some time working through this material as we do each and every year. God gives us a responsibility in, num- in a number of areas of our life, particularly as it relates to this. God gives us a responsibility of shaping our own sexual ethic. God gives us the responsibility of shaping our own sexual ethic. Nobody's charged with shaping that for you. There are people who can influence that, that can speak into that, that can help you work through that. But we have the express responsibility of shaping our own sexual ethic. And what I mean by ethic, particularly sexual ethic, is basically trying to figure out what's moral and immoral. Right? We have the responsibility of shaping our own ethic as it relates to a number of issues in life, whether it be honesty, whether it be integrity, whether it be how we relate to one another in relationships, how we do business, right? how we raise our children, right? the whole notion of ethics or morality or immorality, all those sorts of things play into it, but it's specifically this morning, we're dealing with the responsibility that we have to shape our own sexual ethic. And an ethic is simply a set of morals, principles, especially ones relating to or affirming a specified group, field, or form of conduct. Particularly for us, that means our, our Christian ethic. The ones that have been shaped and given to us by God the Father. Basically, we're dealing with the rightness or the wrongness of certain things. The rightness, not sure if that's a word. Or the wrongness, I'm not sure if that's a word either, but you get what I'm saying. The rightness or the wrongness of certain things. We will all develop our own sexual ethic, and those ethics will usually be shaped by external forces. Either the world that we live in, the culture that surrounds us, or by God the Father, by your parents, right? By your friends, by your neighbors, by TV, all that sort of stuff, right? But today, I want to help us to understand and see a Christ-centered view of sex. That's what I'm simply calling this message this morning, a Christ-centered view of sex. And if you're wondering who this message is for, it's for you. If you're wondering who this message is for, this message is for you. You can text somebody, tweet somebody, tell them to get down here because they need to hear this. But you need to hear this this morning. Listen, I'm a pastor, and I need to hear this just about every month. Right? I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be a Christian. And I still need to hear this stuff each and every month, sometimes twice a month, because this stuff is significant. It's important. A Christ-centered view of sex. Christian sexuality. Christ-centered sexuality. And some of you might say inwardly, oh, that's gross. I don't want God anywhere near my sex life. I don't want Christ anywhere near my sex life. And I would submit to you this morning that that's been the problem. If you look around the room of your life, you might find that there's regrets, that there's unwanted things that have happened, unfavorable things that have happened because you tried to keep some distance between your sex life and Jesus. You've thought that those two things should remain apart. And I'm suggesting to you today that you couldn't be more wrong. And that to keep Jesus and your sex life apart is to make regrettable and sometimes irreversible errors. And the consequences that will come to bear are just sometimes you never never recover from them. You never recover from them. And it's for that reason that I want to talk to some of you, particularly who have made mistakes and who have done regrettable things. And I also want to talk to those in the room who are young, 
who haven't really ventured out into that yet, who maybe are just starting to figure these things out. Maybe we can take some preventative measures, and maybe instead of playing defense, we can play some offense this morning. Because this is legit. This is, this is important. And this message, each time I preach this, has been shaped by the frequently asked questions that I get from young people, middle-aged folks. Every, everybody in between seem to have similar questions, but some of them are specific to their life stage. But hopefully we can paint a broad stroke this morning. I know this is a sensitive subject to work out publicly, so I'm going to invite the Lord's presence as we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, God, for your truth. Thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to stand before these folks, Lord, and to share your word. God, I know that you uh, have here the people that you want to hear, uh, to hear this message, and even those who are listening uh, through our website, Lord, you, 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 there's no coincidence that you're listening today, Lord. So I pray, that, Lord, that you would put power in these words that you've given me to speak. I pray, Lord, that you would grant freedom, that you would grant freedom, that you would extend grace. Lord, I pray that you would limit distractions this morning so that what you want to speak and what you want to go forth will go forth by the power of your spirit. God, move me out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I want to sort of unpack today is is this whole reality that you know, there are certain methods that we all take as we, uh, as we uh, are uh, working out our own sexual ethic, as we're shaping that, right? I told you the responsibility is ours, right? I think a burning question that we must ask is how will we go about that? What method will we choose? What method will we choose? And before I said that, some of you didn't know there was a method. Some of you didn't know you had options. You didn't know you had a choice. And I think there's three particular aspects, who, how, and when as it relates to the method for this, right? The first is how. How will you shape your sexual ethic? You can do so actively or you can do so passively. By actively, I mean you can actively pursue information. You can actively search the scriptures. You can actively pursue those who seem to be getting this right. Tap their hearts and tap their mind, tap their life for wisdom and understanding on this, uh, on this issue. You can pursue knowledge, you can pursue sexual wholeness and healing, you can pursue it, you can be active about it, or well, you, can, you can be passive about it. You can go about it passively. You can float down the lazy river of your sexuality and just go wherever the waves take you. And you get a picture of just somebody floating on an inner tube, just on the lazy river, and you know, you, you're, not, you're not paddling, you're not controlling anything, you're just sort of going wherever it takes you. And I would submit to you that many people in our culture, they're just sort of, you know, just floating along the lazy river of culture and our sexuality, going wherever the wind blows them, wherever the waves take them, and they're in the messes that they are in because there's no activity, there's not actively helping to shake this thing but instead they're doing so passively. So you can do so actively or you can do so passively. I I told you there's a who involved. Who shapes your sexual ethic? Who influences uh, your decisions as it relates to this? You can let God do it or you can let the culture do it. By let God do it, you're sitting here today, you're hearing from God's word, you hear more from God's word, you can pray and seek God's heart. You can study the scriptures and say, Lord, show me how to do this. This is high stake stuff. I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to be a poor example to my children. Lord, show me. If you see anything within me, Lord, correct it. If I see anything, Lord, that I'm doing, that I'm, you know, the path that I'm moving in, that I want to redirect, Lord, you can shape this. Lord, you have the final say here. Or you can let our culture do it. You, You can let MTV do it. You can let People Magazine do it. You can let the porn industry do it. You can let your friends who've made mistake after mistake after mistake in this area, you can let them influence you and be your sounding board and give you advice and help you work through these things. You can let God do it or you can let the culture do it. There's also a win aspect to this time, right? When do I do this? You can do it now or you can do it later. And for those of you who are young, and fairly green, and fairly inexperienced as it relates to this, you can use that prime opportunity, that clean slate, to do this work through some of this now, to develop a healthy, God-centered, Christ-centered sexual ethic now, while you're young, 
or you can do it later. Or perhaps those of you who are here today, you've made many mistakes, and even the consequences of those mistakes have come to bear in your life. You've got all sorts of sexual dysfunction, all types of brokenness. You can continue to let that go, or you can start to make some changes now. You can adopt God's worldview now. You can do it now, or you can do it later. You can do it later when you're already an hour into looking at internet pornography and masturbating all night. You can do it later. Or you can do it when the windows are already fogged up on the car. You can do it as you're undressing. And as your underwear slip past your knees, you can start to figure out, you know, your sexual ethic then. You can do it as you've already amassed a laundry list of former and present lovers. You can start to figure it out then. You can start to figure out your sexual ethic the morning after when shame and regret hit you like a Mack truck. You can do it as you work through the consequences, including STDs, unwanted pregnancies, as the rumors circulate on social media about you and your sexual history. You can start to figure out your sexual ethic then. You can do it later, or you can do it now. My suggestion to you is that you do this the right way, and you put all those right elements together. You actively let God shape your sexual ethic right now. I never get tired of saying that sentence. Never, ever. You can actively, not passively, let God, not this culture, impact and shape your sexual ethic right now and not later. That's the best approach. And in just five short years of um, pastoral ministry, I've seen this method be so fruitful in the lives of people. People have moved up their marriages, the, the, the date of their weddings, because of this sentence right here. People have, you know, cut loose immoral relationships because of this. People have pursued accountability in their relationships because they struggle with things like porn or sexual impurity. They, they change whole aspects of their life because of this sentence right here. It never gets old to me. Actively let God shape your sexual ethic right, right now. Right now. And because this subject is so broad and I can't possibly cover it all, I want to uh, just give you a few basic assumptions that I'm leading with. I'm going into this with as we unpack the scripture for today. The first basic assumption I have is that God has the final say. I mean, that's pretty much where I start with anything. Anybody who stands up to preach and deliver God's word, if they don't start there, in every aspect of life, run out of their church and find another place. Okay? So I got nothing else for you today but what God has to say. We can talk about it. We can discuss our opinions. But from my vantage point, the word of God is the final authority, especially when it comes to high stakes issues like this. God has the final say. Second basic assumption is that sex is a good thing. And some of you go, of course that's a good thing. Of course you think that because you have a uh, healthy marriage uh, with healthy sexuality. You made good choices. You've had good influences. You've not been perfect. But you see sex as a good thing. Lots and lots of people, lots and lots of Christians don't see sex as a good thing for a number of reasons. Maybe you grew up in a church or in a family where sex was just this naughty thing. That this vice that people got into and all the people around you made poor decisions and all the people around you made poor choices and you saw all the fallout and you saw all the consequences of that and because of that you look at something as beautiful, as wonderful, as life-giving as sex, God's creation and you look at it as something that's wrong, you look at it as something that's shameful and you look at it as something as bad. Sex is not bad, sex is good. But like many good things, like many God-breathed, God-created things, if we start to step outside of the boundaries, if we start to misuse it, if we start to jump the fence that God puts around those things that are most important, all of a sudden, they become bad. They become evil. So sex is a good thing. I'd also submit to you as a basic assumption this morning that there is a right way and there's a wrong way to manage your sexuality. I know the talking heads tell you that everybody has a voice and everybody has opinion. Let's get everybody around the table and let's give equal weight to everybody's opinion. But I already started with the fact that God has the final say. And anything that you can do well, you can do it poorly. And anything you can succeed at, you can fail at. 
So there is a right and a wrong way to manage your sexuality. And some of you know that all too well. All too well. All too well. But some of you didn't. And I'm just telling you today. And finally, the basic assumption, the most redemptive one, is that there is freedom, there's forgiveness, and there's redemption for all sexual brokenness. Right? There's no thing that you could possibly do, no thing from your past, that could keep you from receiving God's love and forgiveness. Now, I think it's important to say that out loud and perhaps even say it a couple of times because we're going to deal with some difficult stuff today. You're going to hear some bold things. And those bold things will stand as a full-length, 360-degree mirror around you as it relates to your life and your sexuality and the choices that you made and the way you think. And some things might not be very flattering when you look at the image in that mirror this morning. And what the enemy wants to do with that is he wants to use that to condemn you. He wants to use that to speak to you and say, hey, God's mad at you, you're scum, listen, just leave right now because there's no hope for you. And I'm telling you that there's nothing you could do to where God would not forgive you and love you. There's no mistake that you can make that he can't redeem. So we need to go into this with these basic assumptions. So you guys ready? You ready? Okay, so PG-13. So any children in here, you want to take your children out? That's fine. Um, PG-13. Okay? So I think it's important for us to understand, man, that when we start working and unpacking this whole, whole thing about sexuality, particularly God's standard in general, is we realize that God, God sets a really, really high bar. He sets a really high bar. And oftentimes when I'm talking to young people, middle-aged people, everybody in between, particularly those who haven't heard God's standard before, they kind of gave me this look like, dude, where have you been? Like, where have you been, dude? Like, that book you're teaching out of is pretty old. But like, when is the new version of that going to come out? When is God going to get with the picture? And what they're, what they're, they're pushing back against, they're not pushing back against me. They're pushing back, back against God's standard, which when you compare it to the world standard, dude, God has a really high bar. Now, some of you haven't realized that because you're not really trying to live that way right now. But for those of us who have forsaken all and who've tried, who are trying to pursue and to live out God's standard, we realize, particularly as we behold the culture around us, man, that God sets a really, really high bar. A really high bar that he demands that we hit this bar. So our human standards, particularly our worldly standards, particularly as it relates to sexuality, really boils down to what the law says, right? What's legal. So as it relates to sexuality, basically what's, you know, what's inbounds sexually in our culture is, you know, what's legal. And what's legal usually deals with consent. Is a person of age to be able to consent or in their right mind? Are they sober? Do, do, do you consent to having sex with this person? You, you, you do consent? Okay, well then go for it. That's, that's the bar that our culture sets. And I would suggest to you that that's a pretty low bar. That's a pretty low bar. And when we consider the bar that God sets, his parameters, his fence, his metrics for this, the bar is incredibly, incredibly high when compared to the bar in our culture. And there's a huge gap between the two. And somewhere in that gap is where many of us fall off. Even Christians, this is where many of us fall off. So I find it necessary to, to, to over and over define what God views as sexually immoral. Sexually immoral. So today we're going to talk a lot about sexual immorality. The rightness or wrongness of certain things, particularly as it relates to our sexuality, because God has something to say about it. Turning your Bibles this morning with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It's a short passage, but there's a lot in there. And we're going to try to answer the question this morning, what is, sexually immor- sexual, what is sexual immorality? What is considered sexual, sexually immoral according to Jesus? Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have Bibles, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of the rows. We'll also be projecting this on the screens in front of you. Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus talking. He says this, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. 
But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and out. If many people had their way, they would rip this thing out of the Bible and chuck it, right? Really? Because some of us, I say us, myself included, when we look at the landscape of what God uh, allows, what he suggests, what he commands, and what he prohibits, you know, we're doing all right. You're not really tempted to steal and be dishonest. You're a pretty nice person. You love people. You value them. And you're hitting all the marks. But many of us, present company included, when we get to this passage, we go, man, I was, I was doing well until I got here. In fact, if it were not for this issue of sexuality and sexual immorality, I feel like I'm real close to like getting my wings, you know? I feel like I'm a good guy. I feel like if it were not for this whole pesky guarding your eyes and guarding your heart and not stepping out of bounds of what God has prescribed sexuality, I'd be doing okay. And I would suggest, I would submit and, and probably think that many of you would probably feel the same way here today. But there's this pesky matter of sexual immorality that Jesus considers a big deal, so much so that he speaks to it all throughout the record of Scripture. And I think that this is the best passage, the most concise. It paints the best picture for us of what it means for something to be sexually immoral or sexually out of bounds. To wrestle with this makes this whole issue very difficult to get around. So you got to do business with this passage of scripture or you just have to ignore it altogether. Doesn't seem to be any in between. Either you got to do business with God's standard, particularly as it relates to this today, or you got to completely ignore it. I hope that you, like I, will con- continue to engage this and some of you will begin to engage this this morning. But there's three things that I see in this passage that I think Jesus wants to do and wants us to wrestle with this morning. And the first thing is that Jesus identifies, he identifies the obvious, right? The obvious. Because in this particular aspect of immorality, there are obvious things that are off limits. There are obvious things that are blatantly and inexcusably wrong or immoral as it relates to God's standard. And Jesus opens, says, you have heard the commandment that says, or you heard it written in the law, or you heard it preached, or you heard it taught, that you must not commit adultery. You must not have sexual relations with somebody who you're not married to, right? You must not partake in those uh, extracurricular activities with somebody that you're not married to, or somebody that's married to somebody else. Jesus says, that's the, that's the obvious thing. You already heard that, Right? But some of us haven't heard that. Or some of us are not convinced that that's actually in here. But guess what? It's in here. It's in here. There's a Bible on the edge of your seat for you to check it out. It's in there. That's the obvious. That's the obvious. And basically, the the, the bottom line of this is, listen, if you're not married to a person, you don't get to have sex with them. And you said, well, listen, we're going to be engaged next year. Or there's a possibility that we're going to be engaged and we just want to give each other, you know, a little down payment on this thing. We want to take it for a test drive and see if it's any good. Well, God never had that in mind. He never had that in mind. He never had that in mind as it relates to a prerequisite for marriage. Never had it in mind. And let me just pause here and say that many, thing, many, many marriages are destroyed. Many divorces happen. Many people are living in lifeless, loveless marriages because they start doing that before, you know, they were supposed to. And the danger is that that colors everything. It it colors everything. Here you are, supposed to be sober-mindedly trying to figure out if this person can keep a job, if they are nice to you, if they tell the truth, if they respect their parents, 
If they're the type of guy or gal that could build a family, you're supposed to be thinking about that. And you're supposed to be you're scrutinizing every aspect of their life to see if they're suitable for marriage, to spend the rest of your life with, and to build a family with. But all of a sudden, you, you introduce that into the picture. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about that one move they do. Or you're thinking about that shape. Or you think about how proud you are or how sexually satisfied you are. And all of a sudden, the things that you're supposed to be looking at, so things that you're supposed to be figuring out, all of a sudden, you don't figure that out until the sex part starts to not be as important. And here we've sat in lifeless, loveless marriages. And here we are standing before the judge at divorce court. Here we are, children, you got the kids on the weekends now. Because we didn't deal with the obvious thing that God was saying. No sex for people you're not married to, period. That's the obvious thing. I can spend more time there, but I won't. So Jesus deals with the obvious thing. Second thing Jesus does is he attacks the gray area. Doesn't just discuss the gray area, but he attacks the gray area. He says, verse 28, But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And everybody goes, oh, man. Don't say that, Lord. I was just admiring your creation. I was just beholding the splendor of the works of your hands, Lord. And the Lord says, I know what you were doing, Joker. You were, you were, you were having fun with her in your mind. You were having fun with him in your mind. And Jesus says that that's the gray area that he also wants to identify and deal with. We're talking about sexual immorality here. Sexual immorality here. And I've told you time and time again that the more gray area that I have in my life, the more I end up in the red. The more undefined things that I have in my life, particularly as it relates to this issue, the the more I'm in trouble, the more mistakes I make, the more regrettable things I do and say. And so I've made it a habit as I preach and as I teach to attack, as Jesus does, the gray areas. Attack those areas where it's a little questionable. Well, maybe. Well, God didn't say that you couldn't do this. But what about on Thursdays? You know, can we do it on Thursdays? And as preachers, we're constantly being asked the the question on all spheres of life, but particularly as it relates to this issue and area, is, you know, how how far is too far? (laughs) You know, where is the line? How how close can I tippy-toe on this thing to where God doesn't, you know, it doesn't trigger God's censors? And I would submit to you, some of those questions are well-meaning, but I, I would submit to you, if you're asking that question, then you've probably already crossed the line. Because the gray area is very, 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 very hard. It's very, very destructive. And it's as dangerous and as serious and as detrimental as doing some of the obvious things. Because our sense of, our, our conscience isn't as disturbed, Right? Find ways to justify and find ways to, you know, to rationalize. But Jesus attacks the gray area. He said, listen, I know you heard me say that adultery, fornication is on record sinful. But Jesus says, let's deal for a second with some of the more peripheral things. Some of the more gray areas. Man, it's, 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 it's what, what, okay, we're not having intercourse, but what, what about oral sex? We're not doing that, but maybe just heavy petting and making out and, you know, humping each other. And like, is that, is that okay? Like, show me the scripture. Show me the scripture that says that that stuff is wrong. But Jesus says, listen, listen, we got this one extreme of actual adultery and fornication. But let me show you the other boundary marker. And that is, if you're doing it in your mind, if you're doing it in your mind, then you've done it. So basically, you got a boundary marker here, and you got a boundary marker there. And so what's implied is that everything else in between falls squarely in that category of sexual immorality. Now, I'm not trying to ruin your fun here, but I am trying to help you live the good life, the abundant life. And if you want something that few have, you've got to do something that few do. And that is live according to this standard. Lord isn't just closing the snack bar just so you can, you know, be deprived of things. He knows that these things are fun at the beginning. But boy, when the check comes, when the check comes, you're not going to be able to afford it. 
It's going to ruin you. It's going to derail you. It's going to rob you of the opportunity to live the good, abundant life. And the good, abundant life, I'm not talking about houses, cars, and Cadillacs, and all this other sort of silliness. I'm talking about peace with God and peace with uh, the folks around. I'm talking about you using your life and using your body for what God intended it to be used for. And when you find that you're in the swing of that, that's the good life. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about problem-free existence. I'm talking about being one with God and knowing that you're in step with him. Listen, there is nothing, nothing like it. And some of you don't know that because you've never been there. And some of you don't know that because all the snacks and all the, you know, tuggings of life have, have prevented you from getting there. But I think one of the main reasons that we're robbed of this is because we hang out in the gray. We hang out in the gray. And I think one of, these, one of the areas of gray for those of us, particularly um, Christian men and women who have decided that they will not have sex until they are married. That's a hard and fast thing that they've drawn. Or maybe you've come back around to that. Maybe you've recommitted to that and you've lost your virginity. You've made some mistakes and say, no, I will not. I will not have sex with another person until I'm married. You plant that stake in the ground and you totally and wholeheartedly will live by that. But I think we, we, we suddenly find these other areas to express our sexuality and to gain some measure of relief. And that's why I want to talk about this gray area here. And some of us find that in pornography. Pornography. Jesus says, if you look upon a man or a woman, for that matter, with lust in your heart, you've already done the thing. Now, what do you think? What do you think pornography falls in that? Explicit sexual images and content, explicit sexual, some of you are not into you know, videos or pictures, but you're into explicit reading like novels and things like that. All of that stuff, listen, what, what's going through your mind as you read that? What's going through your mind as you read, you know, those novels? And what's going through your mind as you behold those images and what pictures? Are you thinking about, you know, who wrote Hebrews? Are you thinking about, you know, the things of the Lord? Are you thinking about your grocery shopping list? No, what you're doing is you put yourself in that. And I think some of this goes for a lot of the music and a lot of the media that we consume. And some of us listen to music and we consume all this stuff and it absolutely soils us. And the only thing that it makes us want to do is go get what they were talking about in that song. I don't know about you, but when I listen to a song, I'm imagining what the, 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 what the singer is talking about. If, some, if I'm just singing to you and the girl was you know, skipping through the lilies and she picked three flowers, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about a girl skipping through the lilies and she picked three flowers. I mean, that's what you're thinking about, unless you're not even listening to me right now. <laughs> so what is going through your mind when somebody says, ooh, baby, baby, come put it on me, you know, give it to me over and over and over all night long, do it three, four times to me. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about what the preacher was talking about on Sunday? Well, you're thinking about that sort of stuff. So people have long tried to make the case for me, Christian people, Followers of Jesus who listen to all kinds of junk, all kinds of filth, you can't make that case to me. Because I know what I think about when I hear that stuff. I'm soiled. I'm ruined. i got to recover from that. And trust me, if you're a single person and you're trying to stay holy and trying to keep yourself, you know, maybe Sister Beyonce is not, you know, good listening for you. I'm serious here, man. Because we give ourselves a whole lot of wiggle room. We give ourselves a whole lot of wiggle room. And some of this stuff is just junk. I'm, I'm, it's, it's junk. I'm not saying anything bad about, you know, Beyonce or, you know, her as a person. But the art is junk. And here you are, a married person. You're trying to, you're already struggling in your marriage. You kind of have eyes for your wife or you kind of have eyes only for your husband. And you're in taking all this junk and you're pursuing these boundaries and you're pushing the limits. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Listen, we're going to get into this today. I think we're already into it. And some of us, you know, we, we try to express and just push these boundaries and deal with this gray by the way we dress. By the way we dress. And I just think, man, it's, again, the culture is declining, man. And some of the dress is just ridiculous. Now, let me just be clear about this. This is not just the woman's responsibility. 
Because I've heard talks about this and I've heard people talk about this over and over. They put all the responsibility on the woman to, to dress appropriately so us men folk don't struggle. Listen, just do us all a favor and be modest. That's an extreme. I don't want to explore that today. But I want to do say that every single person who follows Jesus has a responsibility for yourself and for others who will behold you because you carry Christ's name to be very mindful of what you wear because we're not talking so much about sex so much as sexuality. It's all intertwined. And some of you wouldn't dare have sex with somebody you're not married to. And some of you wouldn't dare look at internet pornography. You dare wouldn't listen to explicit lyrics. But you'll just wear anything you want to wear. And you wear these things as no, leaves nothing to the imagination. All sorts of cleavage, all sorts of tight stuff. Because this is your outlet. Listen, I've worked hard for this, buddy. I've, I've, you know, I've really worked hard for this. And I just, you know, may, may, I just won't wear it to church. Well, that's good because there's no men anyplace else. There's no women that might struggle anyplace else. Come on, man. This is serious. And I think that when we dress, and when we dress ourselves, again, we're talking about sexual immorality, which includes our sexuality. When we stand before the mirror, I don't think you should walk out your door unless you can say this, that the Lord would be pleased with what I'm wearing today. The Lord would say, you know what, sister, that, that outfit, that really honors me. You look great, but you're modest, you're covered up. Guys, same way for, for us. This isn't some you know, double standard that we have. The Lord would say, I'm pleased with what you're wearing today. Go and represent me well. Go and show the world how you can be beautiful and modest. Go and show the world how you can represent me and not show all of your goods to everybody. Go and show the world. Go and be a representative of me. Go and be a representative of me. And some of us regularly fail that test because we swim in this gray area. For whatever reason, self-esteem issues, maybe you got a husband that's foolishly, you know, pushing you toward that because he wants some arm candy, he wants to be proud of what you're wearing. We gotta deal with that. That's that's gray area that the scriptures want to attack. Let me speed this up here. Thirdly, Jesus demands that we take action. Talked about the obvious stuff, talked about the gray area, but he challenges us to take action. So what? What do we do? Jesus says, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He continues, verse 30, and if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Listen, is there any confusion about what Jesus is saying here? only confusion we probably experience is, is, is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? What is Jesus saying? Uh, I think the answer to that question is perhaps yes and no. Right? Yes and no. But I think the meaning that we can take out of this, the message is strong here. Jesus would say that there's nothing worth your soul. There's nothing worth your soul. There's no question why he gets, uses this strong language when he's talking about this very serious subject. There's no question why he's using such strong language. If your eye causes you to sin, and oftentimes for me it does, the Lord is saying, gouge that sucker out. Now, I'm not suggesting that you get a spoon. You know, We're not going to provide spoons back there for you so you can pluck your eye out. But I believe that what Jesus is saying here is that whatever you have to do to root the sin out of your life, whatever you have to do to root the temptation out of your life, then by all means, by all means, do it. Whatever you have to do, you have to gouge your eyes out, proverbially speaking, and that eye is very important there. If you have to cancel the cable to be holy before God, then cancel the stinking cable. If you have to get rid of your smartphone and get one of those, you know, flip deals, right? Because you can't deal with the temptation of having at your disposal millions of images and millions of pictures and all sorts of social media that tiptoe on the gray area line of sinfulness, then you need to get yourself a flip phone. Go back to smoke signals if you have to, because nothing is worth your soul. 
thought it's interesting that Jesus mentions here if you have to cut off your hand. I think the hand gives this sort of imagery of work, livelihood, right? And some of you have jobs that aren't really helping you as it relates to your particular struggles. Some of you can't be traveling salespeople that stay in hotels by yourself or travel all around. You just can't. You're not strong enough to do that. The pull towards internet pornography and the pull towards being unfaithful to yourself. Sometimes that pull is just too, far, too, too, too hard on you. Or some of you work in industries. Maybe, you know, you're a lifeguard, but you struggle with lust. So it's probably not real helpful for you to see women in their underwear all day long at the beach. You understand what I'm saying? What's worth your soul? Put them on the scale and see which one is more valuable, this or that. And what Jesus is basically saying is, I want you to take action, decisive action, as it relates to rooting these issues and rooting these areas out of your life. If you don't, you will pay dearly, and the cost might amount to your soul. Might cost you your soul. It might, you know, it might cause you to forfeit living this life eternally with the Father on the other side of this life. It might cost you that. And with sober mind and judgment, can we honestly say that it was worth it? Little thrill, little pop that we got from doing that, was it, was it worth it? I want to spend the last bit of my time here talking really specifically about how to walk this out. Every time I share this uh, annually, I feel like we need to give people some specific direction for different stages of life as to how to walk this out. So Jesus deals with the obvious. Jesus deals with the gray. And he tells us to take action. How do we walk this out at different stages of life? I'll run through this real quick. The single person. My single folks at today, right? I mean, this, is, this means real stuff for you. And I think the obvious that Jesus will highlight as it relates to a single person is this. Listen, no sex means no sex. No sex means no sex. If you are a single person, God bless you. I know your struggle. Particularly if you're a single person that's trying to live according to God's standards and go to his principles, God bless you. But no sex means no sex. You don't, you don't get to have any. Listen, I didn't write that. I'm just reading it to you. No sex means no sex. That's obvious. The gray is, you know, things like these little vices, these little gray areas, pornography, romance novels, all this sort of stuff, man. Listen, God says no to that. You know, this is a serial dating to just sort of have fun and just kind of have you somebody to play with and to cuddle with and to snuggle with and to fool around with. Listen, that's, that's great. That's off limits. That's sexually immoral. It's going to derail you. It's going to slime you. It's going to keep you from God's best. And you can't thrive as a single if you're, you're, you're saddled with all sorts of guilt. You just won't thrive. You just won't live the abundant life, period. And some of you singles really struggle with expressing your sexuality through the way you dress and how you carry yourself and you know, trying to figure out if you still got it. Trust me, you got it. Everybody else doesn't need to have it. And save it for that person who's saving it for you. You understand what I'm saying? Take action. Listen, some of you need new friends. Some of you need to gouge out some folks. Listen, listen, this this Christian life, and I'm going to take my time here, this Christian life isn't compatible with certain folks. Now, God's message of salvation, the kingdom, is for anybody who would engage it. Don't get me wrong there. But some of you are at places of your life where you're right on the edge where the company that you keep and the people that you choose to befriend and the people that you choose to date will make the difference between you making it and you falling into the gutter. And for that reason, some of us have to take decisive action about this. I talk to people all the time. They're struggling. They keep falling. They come sinning. And then I just look at the Facebook pictures. They're out at this club and they're out at that club and they got a drink in their hand all that and they're wearing a short dress. I'm like, what do you think's going to happen? The company you keep is doing this. This is what they're pulling you towards. This is what they're pushing you to. What do you think is going to happen? I think the hardest thing for some of us to do that God will require us to do is to cut some people loose, probably forever, but especially at this particular season in your life where you can get your feet under you and get some understanding about who God has called you to be and to live the good life. Some of you have to take some actions. You have to throw some things away. You've got to cut some people off for right now. And that sounds harsh. That sounds unchristian. That sounds unloving. But forget all of that. I'm trying to get you make it across the finish line here. 
taking some action as a single person. And I think it's also important for us in every stage to, I think we just need to rehearse the consequences of what failure looks like. You know what I'm saying? I think some of us too often are surprised by the natural consequences of our action or our inaction. And I think as a single person, you need to regularly sit down and get silent and say, you know, what happens? What will happen? What could happen if I fail here? What could happen if I, you know, step outside of the boundary marks and have sex before I'm married? What could happen? I could get pregnant. I can have an STD. I can just be forever, you know, my soul could be attached to this person forever. I would have to deal with the shame of that. I would enter my marriage, not a virgin. I would have to be able to tell my children that. I mean, I to, is rehearse the consequences of what failure looks like and also rehearse the benefits of what obedience looks like. I think that's very, very important. And I'll tack that on the end of each one of these stages. So what does it mean for the dating person or the, uh, the, 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 the soon-to-be-married person, the engaged person? Well, it's kind of the same, kind of the same for the single person, believe it or not. The obvious is no sex means no sex. No sex means no sex. I don't care if you're 30 seconds from being married, you're not married yet. I don't care if you only have eyes for that person, if you, you know, you cut your finger and both of you put your blood together and like you gave each other the promise ring and all that sort of stuff. Listen, it doesn't matter. That's not your wife. And that's not your husband. That is your brother. And that's gross. I mean, some of us need it to be framed that way. It's gross. God frowns upon it. That's not yours yet. So put a ring on it officially and, you know, leave it alone. Gray area is the same. All this making out, all of this physicality, the Lord really frowns upon that. It really, it really, it really messes you up. It really messes you up. And the action is the same. You, 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 gotta, you know, some of us just can't be in the same, you know, apartment together. Can't be alone together. Some of you can, but many of us can't. And some of you have proven that to yourself over and over and over. This is just like, listen, we can't be snuggled up in the dark watching the movie. It always leads to something. And it's not a greater understanding of the movie, right? <laughs> We're figuring each other out in ways that are forbidden, in the ways that are sinful. And some action just needs to be taken. I spent some time talking about that with the, the single person. There are clear similarities here. But what about the married person? Now, you'd think that Christian married people, we wouldn't have to discuss the obvious part, right? Well, you're wrong, because I'm a pastor and I know, because people talk to me about stuff. I find out stuff. And the obviousness of, this is the obvious aspect of sexual immorality as it relates to the married person is that you get one well to draw from. And if that's too figurative for you, you get one person to have sex with for the rest of your life. So choose well. One person. One person. One person. I can't make that clearer. You get one well to draw from. And God expects us to adhere to that and draw, you know, hard markers in the sand and, and we dare not cross them. You get one person. That's the obvious, but there's plenty of gray. Plenty of gray. Plenty of gray. And the gray just kind of amounts to just being really reckless and being really loose with regard to, you know, relationships of the opposite sex. I've seen married people do this, and I don't understand. Well, I'm just hanging out with my best friend. Your best, you married your best friend. You should have married your best friend. I remember my wife, when I, my wife and I were dating, and she told me that she was having a picnic with some guy. Well, you're having a picnic with somebody. Your picnic days are over. We can have a picnic as much as I don't like that sort of thing. But I just see all sorts of fraternizing with this. Oh, I'm hanging out. Me and my best friend are going to Vegas together. I'm like, what does your husband have to say about that? You, you may not cross a boundary, but that's very, very unwise. And my wife and I, because we have a lot to lose our marriage get, gets blown up, we impose some standards in our lives, some boundaries in our lives to deal with the gray areas. And she sort of gets laughed at at work because, you know, we don't travel in vehicles alone with the opposite sex. We simply do not do it. 
We don't have meetings with the opposite sex alone. We simply do not do it. And her coworkers get a real good laugh out of that. They think it's ridiculous as they're on their second and third marriage. You understand what I'm saying? And I tell women this all the time. Listen, there has to be an axe murderer after you for me to let you in my car if I'm alone. I'm like a really scary axe murderer. <laughs> I think you might be able to get away. I might just swerve my car in front of them. Let's slow them down a little bit. <laughs> but we're not riding together. I'm sorry. We're not doing it. There's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. For married people, listen, we talk, pornography is just as big a deal for married people as it is for single people. And listen, we dare not go there. It's a fool's errand. It's a trap. And some of you here today, you're struggling with this. And my recommendation is when you go home, you ask each other, married folks, you ask explicit questions. Are you looking at pornography? Now, that's going to ruin somebody's day. So be strategic about the timing when you do that. But pornography is an issue. And all the other things that I, these, these gray areas, these questionable relationships with other people, the flirting at the office, some of you got like office husband or office wife, whatever that means. Come on, man, you're asking for trouble. You think that you're the smart person that's going to flirt with all this stuff. You're slick enough to beat the enemy of this game after people stronger and more devout in their faith than you have fallen and failed. You think that you, you will overcome it and you will beat it. You probably won't. You probably won't. And as I wrap this up, I know I've gone over my time today. As I wrap this up, I think it's important for me and you, particularly those of us who are married, to rehearse the consequences of what it means to fail in this area. I told you early, man, I got a lot to lose. I would lose a lot if I stepped out on my wife. I would lose, I'd lose a lot if I fall in, in immorality. I'd lose a lot. And I regularly, regularly rehearse what will happen if I fall. That I will lose my wife's respect and perhaps lose my marriage. And even if I don't lose my marriage, it'll never, ever be the same. Never, ever be the same. Don't you be, be in the dark about that. There's redemption and there's forgiveness, but it will never, it will never, ever be the same. That my children would not have my respect and they would see me mistreating and being unfaithful to their mother. That I would likely lose for a moment or perhaps forever the opportunity to serve this congregation. I lose a lot. To have to field questions from my children as to why daddy's not pastoring anymore. And to perhaps be excluded from, you know, having the moral authority to stand up and preach. That's, that's, that's a lot. I don't have time to list the whole thing, but that's a lot. I lose a lot. And I found it helpful and I found it necessary to rehearse in my mind the consequences of failing with sexual immorality. And the cost is too great. It's too great. And it's great for every stage of life, no matter what your station of life is. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and even if you're not, the cost is too great. Worship team, you can come up as we close. So we put this all together. We say, listen, God has a very heavy standard for this. He, has, he sets a high bar for this. He sets a high bar for this. But he does so for our benefit because he knows, he knows that to get this right is to get a lot right and to live the abundant life relationally. And to get this wrong means that we, we get a lot wrong. It derails a lot. And some of you are living, walking testimonies of this for good and for bad. So some of you heard this today and you're feeling, I mean, you're feeling really low because you're really struggling with this. You've really made mistakes here. You mean you made mistakes last night. And you're going, man, I'm, man, I'm a slug. God must want nothing to do with me. No, he wants you here today so you can hear, put a mirror in front of you, but so that you can also respond and lean in to his standard and lean in to what he would have to say and prescribe for you today. That's why you're here. He didn't bring you here to beat you up today, although some of you feel pretty battered. He brought you here today to show you the truth of who he is and what he expects and to help you walk toward that and have a measure of freedom 
and wholeness and healing to live the good, abundant life. That's why you're here today. That's why we spend time talking about this. Because God loves us. For those who haven't ventured into these waters yet, listen, listen, let God keep you. But for those of you who are swimming in this right now, let God redeem you. That's why you're here. My prayer is that as we worship, that the, the Lord would just begin to minister to your heart. He's already dropped righteous truth on you. But what he wants to do now, he wants to minister to your heart. And there'll be an opportunity for you to respond at the close of our service. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. Even though it cuts us, God, even though it offends our senses. God, you show us who you are and you show us who we really are. And God, I pray that each and every one of us would let you continue to do the work that you started in us this morning. And Father, as, you wor- as we worship you today, Lord, would you just continue to till the soil of our heart and help us to see, really, really see, God, what you have for us and what your best is for us. And God, give us the strength and give us the courage to respond, to take action this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.